Father God, thank you for our worship in this room. Thank you for the time that we have together. Thank you, God, for people who have been professing faith in Jesus in recent weeks and months. Thank you, God, that we see evidence of the work of your spirit. We really do, do believe in God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit and things like the resurrection. You are such a good God. So guide us as we reflect together now, Lord, and as we prepare ourselves to come to this table that signifies the greatest battle that was ever fought. And uh, would you speak to us as only you can? For this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. There's a new word that's become popular in the English vocabulary. Uh, it's the word frenemy. You've heard the word frenemy. Um, it's an oxymoron. It's the use of the word friend and the word enemy and, you know, put them together, frenemy. It's somebody who pretends to be close and on good terms with you, but in fact, in reality, they're a rival. They're at odds with you, perhaps on the, on the inside. They might even be working against you and you don't know it. Sigmund Freud knew all about frenemies. He didn't use that term, but he actually wrote about frenemies. Sigmund Freud said this, he says, an intimate friend and a hated enemy have always been indispensable requirements for my emotional life. I have always been able to create them anew and not infrequently my childish ideal has been so closely approached that friend and enemy coincided in the same person. Frenemy, even Freud had frenemies way back when. When I was in the fifth grade, um, I had a frenemy, his name was Lee. And I thought I was smarter than Lee. I thought I was more athletic than Lee. We both played on the uh, elementary school basketball team. I thought I was definitely more popular than Lee. But then one day, Lee and I both decided to run for the uh, fifth grade president. You know, there's a lot of responsibility associated with that role. And um, I was sure I would get elected. In fact, I was sure I would crush him, you know. And that's okay, Lee, don't be upset, that kind of thing. But to my surprise and chagrin, Lee won running away. And that whole year I had a grudge against Lee. Uh, I kind of resented him, felt like he had something that should have been mine. Uh, I kept on, <coughs> excuse me, pretending that I was okay, but really I wanted to see him fail. I know that shocks you that that could be true of me, but uh, I, w I wanted him to be impeached, you know, <laughs> if there was a way for that to happen. Uh, on the outside, I still continued to pretend that Lee was my buddy and my friend and we did some stuff together, but on the inside, he would kind of become my enemy. Now, whether you're in elementary school or whether you're all grown up, this frenemy thing that we're talking about, very real, very present. So I want to ask you a question kind of right at the outset here. Who are your frenemies? Who are your frenemies? Any names come to mind? Any names? Uh, there's a story of a pastor who preached on forgiving, his forgiving your enemies at his church. And he asked the congregation very boldly to stand if they were willing to forgive their enemies. And the pastor noticed that there was one guy, kind of an old guy who wasn't standing. And the pastor knew him, it was Mr. Jones. And so he kind of called him out on this. Mr. Jones, are you not willing to forgive your enemies? And Mr. Jones replied, I don't have any enemies to forgive. And the 
pastor was a little bit surprised and shocked. I mean, knowing people, he knows that that can't possibly be true. You mean to tell me you've lived your whole life long, and this was an elderly gentleman, you've lived your whole life long and you don't have a single enemy? And Mr. Jones said, nope, I'm 95 years old and I don't have any enemies to forgive because all those sons of guns are dead. <laughs> I read this recently that the uh, former president, Richard Nixon, had an actual list, an enemy's list, and he became, of course, notorious. This is one of the things he became notorious for, but uh, he had an enemy list, and it had names on it that listed all of his political opponents, people that opposed him or were getting in the way of his agenda. And uh, we know now that he actually used the federal machinery, the federal government, to kind of put the screws to his political enemies. I'm sure that's never happened since, but uh, uh, that we know happened then. Now, uh, we may not have lists like Nixon, you may not, you know, written out names of your enemies, but I bet you have a mental list of sorts, you know, maybe not a long one, but I bet you have a list. People who have wronged you, and you haven't forgotten it. People you don't like, because maybe they don't like you, people you can't stand to be around, people that if you can, you'll avoid them. And so you talk to others about them and in subtle ways, depending on how skilled you are at this, you'll say disparaging things, things that don't build them up, but tear them down. People who you wouldn't care if something bad happened to them. I don't mean bad like death or something, but I mean, you know, losing their job wouldn't hurt, you know. You could enjoy that. But here's the thing. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount and have been for some time now. And Jesus is forming a community of people in the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount that will follow a, a different, entirely different way of life. The most important characteristic that he wants to instill in his followers who live in his kingdom is this ethic of loving relationships. And he comes at this from a variety of different angles uh, because it is so important. He's painting pictures of what it looks like to live in the ethic of loving relationships. And Jesus' intent is to confront and to address anything in his kingdom, anyone who wants to be in his kingdom, who would threaten this thing of loving, love-filled relationships. And he's very deliberately creating new standards, new standards for how people relate. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus again says something radical. And I say again because every week I kind of stand up here and I say, he says this most radical thing. Well, he just keeps doing it. That's why I keep saying it. He really does. He just keeps shocking people again and again and again with the way he looks at life and the way he approaches life and the truth that he bears uh, to bring to bear on life. And so I'm going to say it again. This might be the most radical thing Jesus ever said. Uh, but here's the thing, Jesus didn't just say this, he actually lived it out, which is quite remarkable because it's easy to say shocking things. It's a whole nother thing if your life demonstrates the truth of it. And we'll come back to that idea in a bit. Um, this is what Jesus said, or at least part of it. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that's just common sense. That's what we all do. That's that's obviously true, right? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father 
who is in heaven. Not only is that an incredible statement, it's almost certainly one of Jesus' most ignored statements. Let's be honest. We don't take that very seriously, very often, not really. Uh, how, How many of us can honestly say, I do love my enemies? How many here? Wow. Visitors, you may want to get up and go. This is a dangerous place to be, right? Yeah. It's interesting. Right here is the first time in Jesus' teaching where he uses the word that pretty much sums up the entirety of his message, which is the word love. First time. Right here in this context, Jesus uses the word love. Uh, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, he's commenting on this this statement that we just read uh, that Jesus made. And this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed. He said, love is defined in uncompromising terms as the love of our enemies. (laughs) Had Jesus only told us to love our neighbor, our family, our friends, people we like, we might've misunderstood what he meant by love, but he leaves no doubt as to its meaning. For Jesus' listeners, the enemy was not an abstraction. As these words came out of Jesus' mouth, they knew exactly to whom he was referring, end quote. You see, here's the context. For hundreds of years ago, or for hundreds of years, Israel had been under a a very uh, oppressive government, one oppressive government, frankly, after another. And uh, now the oppressive government was Rome very powerful, powerful empire. Many Israelites had been persecuted for their faith. Freedom and peace were something they could only imagine, but they had never actually experienced it. And so to them, it was clear who the enemy was. The enemy is Rome. It's these Roman occupiers, Roman soldiers, Roman authorities, Roman dignitaries, Romans who take our taxes, Romans who oppress us left and right. Rome, that's the enemy. Now, they probably had personal enemies too, but this was public enemy number one. But then Jesus goes and says this. He says, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now understand, for Jews at this time, for anybody who was following Jesus at this time, it was not unusual for a Roman soldier to take out their frustration on you if that's what they wanted to do. At any time, a Roman soldier could strike or backhand a Jew. That was not punishable by any law whatsoever. If that soldier were having a bad day, if they were feeling frustrated, if they were impatient, if you looked at them cross-eyed or something of that nature, if they just wanted to exert their power, their influence, their authority over you, bam, they could do it. A Roman soldier could also take just about anything you had if they wanted it for no good reason, just because they could, just because they held the power. And so if they liked your shirt, well, hey, nice shirt, give it to me. You had to turn it over. You didn't have much choice about it. It could lead to lots of trouble just over a shirt if you didn't turn it over. Sandals, tunic, whatever. 
Uh, they could even make you carry their gear. Some of you know this. Jesus actually, that's what he's referring to in the, what we just read. The Roman soldier could force a Jew to carry their stuff, their backpack, their equipment, their gear by law for up to a mile. Up to a mile. It takes a while to walk a mile, especially if you're carrying somebody else's heavy gear. So at any moment, a Roman soldier could just do this and you'd have to, I guess if you had stuff, you'd have to park it somewhere or you'd have to carry it all at the same time, what have you, and you'd take on their belongings and away you go. Imagine living under this type of oppressive force every day, all day long, your whole life long. That was the experience of a Jew there in Palestine occupied by the Romans. And this, of course, is why there were movements like the Zealots, for example. The Zealots were a whole political revolutionary movement, uh, a group of people working underground, hoping to, planning to, striving to overthrow these oppressive Romans. Jesus even had one as a disciple. What was his name? Simon the Zealot. That was one of Jesus' disciples. I'm sure he saw Jesus perform miracles, saw the power of Jesus, loved the teaching of Jesus, became a follower of Jesus and thought, you know what? This just might be the Messiah. This just might be who is gonna overthrow the Romans. This is the guy I'm throwing my lot in. And then Jesus comes along and says this, hey, Simon and the rest of you, love your enemies. Hmm. Love the Roman soldiers. <laughs> I'm sure that was confusing and frustrating. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, you've all heard of Frederick. Frederick Nietzsche, a German philosopher, said this. He said that Jesus' command to love one's enemies is testimony to the fact that the Christian ethic is designed for weak and cowardly and not for the strong and courageous. It's honestly, to me, quite ironic that someone so smart could say something so dumb something that so completely and entirely misses the point, literally misses the point. Because you see, the truth is what Jesus is asking his followers, you and me, to do is anything but weak. He's not calling his followers to be a passive doormat for their enemies. He's actually calling us to love our enemies, no matter what no matter what. So if a Roman soldier backhands you across the cheek, Jesus' kingdom response would be to, to take it and even accept another, turn the other cheek. <coughs> Excuse me. If a soldier took something from you, the kingdom response would be to gladly, gladly give it and even more if that would be helpful. If the same Roman soldier threw their bags on your back to carry them for a mile, Jesus' kingdom response to that is to double down on the distance and help them in ways they would never, ever expect. You see, there, there's nothing weak or cowardly whatsoever about Jesus' command. It's actually quite bold and courageous. It's actually what we see demonstrated over and over and over in the life of Jesus himself as Jesus related to people that hated him, wanted to see him dead. And now here we are 2,000 years later and we read about and we study this command from Jesus and we've got to ask, 
who comes to my mind when Jesus says, love your enemies? Do you have any for enemies? Now, thank God we don't live with a government that's quite as oppressive as the Roman government, although tax time is coming and we kind of feel it a little bit. But we don't live with an oppressive government that's pressing us into service, whether we want to do that kind of thing or not, or a government that's taking our stuff, just taking it from us. We don't have a government that's inflicting beatings on us for no reason whatsoever. But maybe you have an oppressive boss you work with day in, day out. Amen, staff? That can be very oppressive. A boss who doesn't care about your time, doesn't care about your, your family, doesn't care about your ups, your downs. Or maybe you have a family member with whom there are some pretty broken, pretty dysfunctional, pretty hurtful things that get exchanged back and forth. Or maybe you have somebody uh, who vowed to love you till death do you part, but they didn't honor that vow. Or maybe your enemy is a former business partner. I was talking to someone very recently about a business mess that they're involved in and wow, it's a mess. Being badly taken advantage of. They're being screwed. What do they do? How do they handle it? Or maybe you've got an enemy who's just a coworker at work and man, they're out to get you. They want credit for things that you do and they wanna blame you for things you didn't. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you right now. Don't look at them, don't look at them. <laughs> the point is this, it's just plain easy to be hurt and bruised by people in this world. It's easy to make enemies. Hardly anyone will go through life without collecting a few. And just keep in mind too, the fact that you are probably on someone's frenemy list. You are, and so am I. And yet Jesus tells his disciples, hey, this is the kind of thing he would say over and over, various contexts. I could give you a half a dozen of these kinds of statements that Jesus made. One time he said this, he said, this is my commandment. Now, anytime somebody says to you, you know, if a boss says, this is my commandment, that would be time to get out a pencil, you know, something to write. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. If he just hadn't said that last part, then we could qualify it and we could define it. But he says, as I have loved you. And when Jesus said this to his group of disciples, remember he was talking to a group of guys who I'm pretty sure were not often, uh, not always fond of each other, sometimes even hated each other. We know, for example, that in the mix of Jesus' disciples, there was Matthew, the tax collector, which meant that Matthew was a collaborator with the Roman government taking money away from Jews. That was one disciple, Matthew, the tax collector, and not just a tax collector. He was apparently a chief tax collector, which meant he was in charge of little tax collectors, which he was filthy rich off the backs, off the labor, off the good names and hard work of the people of Israel. Matthew's getting rich as he takes their money and gives most of it back to the Romans. So that's one of Jesus' disciples. And then there's that Simon guy, Simon the Zealot. And we've laughed about this together before, but you know, when they would travel, can you imagine what it was like to see those two bunk up together? Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the zealot, you guys get uh, the, the second room on the right down there. <laughs> wow, yeah, lots of love there, lots of love. And that's 
Disciples like that, Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another. Then there's the Zebedee boys, James and John, you know, these guys, repeatedly asking Jesus for special favors and positions of power, even getting their mother to ask Jesus to give them special positions of power. And they did this so much that it made all the other disciples angry. In fact, the word used in scripture is that the other disciples became indignant, resentful, pissed off about what these two guys were constantly doing, trying to get a leg up on everybody else. And Jesus says to this inner circle of 12, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, if, if tax collectors and zealots, people trying to advance themselves before others, if you have love for one another. That's the badge. That's the mark right there. Jesus said, being my disciple is not... It's not about how many miracles you perform and get noticed about. It's not about how great a preacher you might be or how large the crowd you can gather. It's not about how many people that you see profess faith or any of that kind of thing. It's really just about this, how well you love. That's what it's about, how well you love. Now, the Apostle Paul, if you know anything about the, the life of the Apostle Paul, and some of you do, you know that this is an interesting guy. This is a rule follower. Tell me the rules, I'll follow them better than you can follow them. That's the Apostle Paul. And if you weren't following the rules, he was going to do something about it. He was going to rat you out. He was going to expose you. He would bury you. And so when the Apostle Paul uh, observed the early development of the church and people believing in Jesus, it really ticked him off really ticked him off. And he went after people, Jews who were becoming followers of this, this false Messiah, he thought, and he was persecuting them and wanted to bring them back, put them in jail in Jerusalem, even see some of them lose their life over this profession of faith that they made. Well, later on, the apostle Paul makes a very interesting observation. This is that same apostle Paul who's now encountered Jesus. Jesus has come into his life and you can see how Paul has changed because Paul writes this and he says, the only thing that counts is faith, not keeping the rules, faith expressing itself through love. Whew. That is a 180. That is a 180 life change for the apostle Paul. Come on, Paul, there are a lot of things in the Bible, a lot of commands, a lot of do's and don'ts, and yet you're saying that none of them matter if you don't have love? And I think Paul would say, yeah, that's, that's what I've come to understand, that without love, you have nothing. Nothing else really matters. And of course, uh, I would just, again, underline the fact that these are not just radical words. They're words that are really impossible for us to live out, if you want to know the truth. Love, loving your enemies, loving the people who persecute you, praying for the people who persecute you. Come on. That's what Jesus says. Impossible to do. It's impossible. You know, the English language, uh, we get a lot of mileage out of the word love, don't we? We're kind of loose with that. We use it for, for so many different things. I love tacos. I love skiing. I love football. I love Tom Brady. 
I love this movie, you know, whatever it is. And what we mean by things like that a lot of times is I, I prefer this thing, tacos over pizza, you know, Brady over, what's his name, Goff or whatever. Um, doesn't matter, he's going to get beat. But anyhow, um, I, I digress. You know, I love coffee and how it wakes me up in the morning. I love how it smells. When, when we say things like that, we're saying, I love how something makes me feel or I love, I have a preference for this over that. And we use this word love. I love, I love, I love, I love. I love the car I drive. I, I love the bike I ride. I love, I love, I love. And then I take that same word and I say, I love my wife. And I, I don't mean it the same way not planning to get rid of Holly and get a new model anytime soon, but I may do that with a bike. I love my kids, love my grandkids. When I say things like that, it's not about preference or about how something makes me feel. It's more about commitments inside, deep inside me and loyalties and, and affections. You see, those are all so different from I love tacos. I love this bike. I love that quarterback. I love, you know, it's just funny in the English language, we have this one word love and boy, do we get a lot of mileage out of it. And mostly when we use it, we don't use it for serious things. We do occasionally, but most of the time when we use the word love, we're talking about feelings and emotions and preferences. Uh, we use the word very casually, but here's the thing. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus means something very different than that kind of use of love when he uses the word love. The Greek language is... Uh, is really helpful in this regard because there are actually multiple Greek words you can use uh, to mean love, to mean like, to show preference, one thing over another. The word that Jesus uses here, it's the word agape. Many of you have heard of that Greek word before, agape. It's a significant Greek word. For God so loved the world, agape, that's the root. Uh, Jesus is asking us, you see, to uh, think of people in a different way than we normally do when he says he wants us to love, to agape people. In God's kingdom, the, this enemy of ours that, that we have trouble loving or even wanting to be around or they, they, they even disgust us, they hurt us, they're painful. Well, that enemy is actually agape in the kingdom of God, beloved. They probably don't know it. Maybe they don't care, but they're human beings made in the image of God, a God who wants them to flourish and wants them to grow, wants them to be all that they're supposed to be. And of course, they're anything but perfect, just like we're anything but perfect, but they still reflect the image of God. And the bottom line too is God loves them, our enemies. <coughs> Jesus says, <clears throat> If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? <clears throat> Are not even the tax collectors doing that? That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. Who wrote Matthew? Matthew wrote Matthew. What was Matthew again? Tax collector. I, I read stuff like this. <laughs> what was Matthew thinking when he had to write down? What, what are you saying, Jesus? You know, <laughs> even Matthew cares about people who care about him 
And you know what kind of scum Matthew is. <laughs> What's Jesus saying? Well, he's acknowledging that people are basically good to people they like. That's just true. To people who are good to them, you know, we're usually good back. That's basic, self-serving human nature. The problem is, the problem is the opposite of that is also true. We're not inclined to be good toward people we don't like. We're not inclined to be good to people who don't like us, and we know it. We're not inclined to be good towards people who don't help us advance our own little kingdoms. We're not inclined to be good toward people uh, who we don't know, who are different than us. We're not inclined that way. Here's a silly little example how that works or plays out just in day-to-day routines. This morning you entered this room and when you came in, if you saw somebody you knew <coughs> and if the service hadn't started, so this applies to about 30 of you, if you, uh, if you saw somebody uh, that you knew, you, uh, you, you look at them, you make eye contact, there's a warm smile, you might have even gone over and, hey, good morning, good to see you. And they just right back at you, you know, yeah, good to see you too. How you doing? That kind of thing. That's just how we operate. Warmth is exchange back and forth. People who are good to us, we're good to them. But, you know, there's something about a person, and I saw it happen a couple times this morning, who they, they step way out of their way or way out of their comfort zone across boundary lines to show acts of courtesy, hospitality, warmth, welcome, benevolence, kindness, etc. Just saw a couple people go out of their way to greet somebody who was already in here before them, somebody they didn't know, and went out of their way to introduce themselves. That's not a big deal. Or really, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's a huge deal. Maybe Jesus would say that people are never more like God than when they are in a moment like that where they're showing good and kindness and grace to others for for no reason, no payback. I think there's something about loving and serving people you don't know, people who aren't loving you, uh, people who aren't serving you. There's something about loving people regardless of who they are and regardless of whether they can love you back and regardless what they've done, maybe in spite of what they've done. Enemies, there's something very actually powerful about that. Have you ever been served by somebody loving you and you can't for the life of you figure out why they're being so caring and so loving? They just are. You know, Jesus illustrates this kind of love uh, in an unusual way. He, he actually compares the way God uh, works, the way God treats people who he calls evil and people who are good. He says this, he says that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Point Jesus is making is that God knows people who deserve a good life. God knows people who deserve anything but a good life, but everyone gets rain, everyone receives sun. Why? Why? In the world? Couldn't, couldn't you just imagine if, if it was easy to see who the good people were because there would be this bolt of sun, you know, just, and, and if they needed rain, you know, there'd be rain, it'd be whatever they needed. It just kind of follows them around in a puddle, right? And then others are walking around in darkness, but that's not the way God operates. 
God just, he doesn't reserve good things for just good people. Why? Well, understand, God's love is generous, meaning it's not earned. God's love is gracious. God's love is compassionate. God does good things for rotten people all the time. Peter one time explained why Jesus hadn't come back yet. There was a whole group of people to whom Peter was writing. They were being persecuted. They had understood, Dad Gummit, that, that God was going to come back soon. Jesus was going to come back soon. How come he hadn't come back yet? I mean, come on, man, this sucks. I don't like what's happening. This is a mess. I, my life's a mess. I got my job taken away from me and blah, 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 blah. Where is Jesus after all? And that's, that was the sentiment being expressed. And Peter says this, the Lord... Is not slow in keeping his promise. It's not like his promise doesn't matter to him. As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Whoa. Whoa. That's a little bit of an insight into the heart and the mind of God. Why Jesus hasn't come back yet, just yet. See, here's the deal. If you love your enemies despite the way they treat you, when that happens, that's what God's doing. That's what Peter's describing. God is being patient for a purpose because he loves people. He could come back right now, judgment right here, right now, boom, but he hasn't done that. He's loving his enemies despite the way they act, despite the way they treat him. And if we love our enemies, despite the way they treat us, despite the way we feel about them, then we too are displaying the characteristics of God's kingdom, the upside down, inside out reality of Jesus' kingdom that is precisely what Jesus uses to, to provide conclusive proof that there is a God. Isn't that a weird argument for the proof of the existence of God? You, me, the church, People loving, willing to love people who don't deserve to be loved. That's why Jesus wants this to be true about us. And Jesus doesn't want people to understand just that there is a God. He wants them to understand that there is a God who is good, like we were singing. There is a God who is gracious, generous, loving. Well, how can I know that? Well, just look at his people. Look how they live. Look at how them. They love. Now, I'd be lying if I didn't tell the other side of that story. And the other side of that story is that at some point, Jesus is going to come back and God is going to make all things as they should be. In other words, right. God will hold all of humanity accountable, accountable for our behavior, which is not too pretty. There is a day of judgment and justice coming. Evil will be overcome. Justice will be meted out. Punishment will happen. But in this moment right now, we live in a time of God's grace and generosity. And uh, Jesus draws a pretty powerful conclusion from this. He says this, be perfect therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. What do you mean, Jesus? What, what are you getting at? Well, that's a way of underlining everything he's been saying up to this point. He's saying, if this is what God is like, then what must you be like? 
If this describes his love, what must your love look like? If this describes how he treats people, how must you treat people? If this is what God is like, then what must the people of his kingdom be like? We must be a people who love, for goodness sakes, even our enemies. How many here like this? Yeah, me either. I'd rather just get revenge. You want to come to the small group that's going to be all about revenge? We'll just dream up some creative ways to get revenge on the scumbags in our lives. That would really honor Jesus, wouldn't it? No, it would miss the entire point altogether. It's obvious. You know, the truth is we all know something about having enemies and we all know something about how difficult it is to love them. And of course, Jesus knew something about this too. And again, back to Peter, Peter says this, he's describing Jesus. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, remember Peter now, Peter's the guy who did what to Jesus? He denied him three times, right? Even cursed him, cursed Jesus, cursed, declared he didn't know him. Okay, so this is Peter remembering the whole scenario. And when he remembers it, he remembers it this way. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. And instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins. Can you imagine Peter writing that and remembering that in the context of his own betrayal? He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. In other words, so that we could be different. You see, by his wounds, you have been healed. He's remembering the prophet there. Here's the deal. Here's where we get the power or the ability to do the impossible, which is to love our enemies. We get it from Jesus. Who'd have thought that, right? You didn't see that coming. But we get it by realizing first that we have been Jesus' enemies. We have been Jesus' enemies. Our sins put him on the cross. And of course, the cross is all about Jesus taking his enemies and making them friends. That's what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross. Jesus went to the cross entrusting himself to him, to the father who judges justly. The key to Jesus' ability to do what he did was constant trust in and dependence upon the heavenly father. And Jesus knew that his heavenly father was good. He was good. Even in bad stuff, his heavenly father was good. And that's why Jesus loved his enemies. By, that's the way he did it, by entrusting himself to the Father. Friends, that's how we love our enemies as well. Day in, day out, entrusting ourselves to the Father. Yes, I just got wronged. Yes, I just got slammed. Yes, I'm being persecuted. But you know what? I'm gonna entrust myself to the Father, which is gonna give me all the resources I need to keep on loving, keep on praying for, keep on engaging in this person's life in a way that says you're loved. The command of Jesus to each and every one of us is to love our enemies. There's no way around that. No way around that. It's really a command to begin setting your mind on God's kingdom and not on the things of the earth. It's a command to do what, to live the way Jesus lived. 
The command to love your enemies, the command to find your hope and your peace in God and in his great reward, not in the way people treat you. That's hard. You know, we were all at one time on the list of God's enemies. We all were. <coughs> and at the cross, we moved from that list to a different list. When we realize the price that was paid to make us friends with God, that changes us if we let it. It's the only thing that will change us. And that enables us to do the impossible, which is this thing of agape, unconditional love. It's this thing of loving our enemies. What we have in the communion is we have agape love on display. That's what we have. You know, I, I say this a lot. Uh, it just happens when you get old. You just repeat yourself all the time. But this is, you know, about remembering the good stuff. It's the awful stuff that produce the good stuff. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. It's remembering together. Remembering we're supposed to love our enemies. That's the indisputable proof of the existence of God. We are the indisputable proof of the existence of God, letting him work in us. And why do we come to a table that we call communion and the table that we say Jesus is hosting? Well, it's it's the rehearsal of the vital things we're supposed to remember. And what's displayed here is agape love, God's unconditional love in his son, Jesus. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples took bread and, and he broke it. They didn't really understand exactly what he was doing at the time, but uh, he was painting them a picture and he gave this meal to us as a sacrament. It's, we come to this meal in faith and we remember his broken body. And, and as we partake of it, something happens spiritually. Life, energy, resources, grace is sealed in us and comes to us because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So I invite you to come to this table in faith you know, the only way to properly partake of the bread or the wine is to partake by faith. And uh, parents, important if you have children partaking with you that you know they understand and have faith as well. And, and when we do that, this is a meal of life to us. In the same way, uh, Jesus in the upper room took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. And then he gave it to them to eat and to drink. We're going to eat and drink together. So uh, when the elements are passed out to you, you can take one and hold on to it until everybody has them. And then we'll partake together. And the same thing we'll do with the cup. But we invite you to join us in this sacramental meal, celebrating the agape love of Jesus. So pray with me. Father God, we set these elements 
apart for their special purpose of reminding us of the broken body and the sacrificed shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. And we are thankful, God, that while we were enemies, enemies of Jesus, you loved us anyway. You loved us so well, so fully, so completely. Our sins, past, present, and future have been set apart from us as far as the East is from the West. And we have life, life with you because of Jesus. Would you feed us and nourish us spiritually? Would you encourage hearts that need encouragement? Would you fill us up, Lord, with what we need to be whole, to be healthy, to be useful to you? In all of this, would you work because of Jesus? We thank you. We thank you for this meal. In his name, amen.